0: Seated. Please open to Romans chapter 8 if you have the Bible. By the way, if you do not have a Bible, if you would like a Bible before you leave here today, uh, come talk to one of our ushers and we will make sure that we give you one. We don't want anybody not to have a Bible that would like to have one. Romans chapter 8. We have come to verse 5 in our study of this letter, verse 5 of the 8th chapter, What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to begin by just reading four verses, five through eight. Then I'm going to make a few statements regarding the course of action and purpose for this morning, and then we'll jump into the text. Romans 8, five through eight, Paul wrote, who are in the flesh cannot please God. First of all, let me tell you the course that I'm going to take over the next two Sundays, the Lord willing. I'm sure that you noticed as we read those four verses that what Paul is doing there, the apostle, he is with his pen penning a contrast of two different kinds of lives. Did you see that? A life lived in the flesh and a life lived in the spirit. And what is I plan to do is I want to look at each one of those two lives over the next two Sundays. I want to take the life of the individual that has lived in the flesh this morning. That's going to be the one that's not so fun to preach on. And then next Sunday I want to preach on the life that has lived in the Spirit. But here's the purpose, that's the course, the intended course, here's the purpose. The reason that I would like to do that, and obviously in trying to be true to the text, I want to say what the text says. You know, Brad doesn't have anything to say to you if it doesn't come out of here. I'm not near smart enough to do anything to help you spiritually unless I'm taking it directly out of the Word of God. It's the Word of God through the Spirit power of the spirit of god that does the work of preaching. So I want to stay as close to Paul's and what I believe is Paul's intent in writing the text. So I want to look at the contrast that he gives. And the purpose for that is that I am trusting, believing, asking that the spirit of god as we look at the descriptions and the picture that Paul paints first of the life that's lived in the flesh this week and next Sunday the life that's lived in the spirit, that as those two lives are held up and described in just really the incredible terminology, the comprehensive, all-encompassing terminology that Paul uses, that as we look at those, you're going to be able to see yourself in one of those two pictures you're going to be able to see your life as either a life lived in the flesh or a life lived in the Spirit. And based upon what the Lord reveals to you as you look into His Word and listen to His Spirit, there will be some things that you should do depending upon where you see yourself lining up there and we'll talk about those as we unpack this truth. the first thing that I want to show you here before I look specifically at the life that is lived in the flesh is that I want to show you what the contrast is that's being made. I, it's really important, I believe, that you understand this so that this text is not misinterpreted because it is at times misinterpreted. It's understood to mean something that I believe is just directly in opposition to what Paul is saying here. I'm going to try to explain what that is. There are those in the Christian church that interpret this. I was reading, if I said his name, I'm not going to do that. I've said his name and really well know, I mean, I respect this preacher. He's an incredible preacher of the Word of God. But he and many others interpret this passage to be a com- contrast between a carnal Christian and a spiritual Christian. A Christian that is immature and one that is spiritually mature or even in a little different com- contrast, a Christian that has not yet had an encounter with the Spirit of God in some supernatural way and one that has had an encounter And change them. And what I think that I can show you. Directly from the evidence of the text itself. Is that that cannot be the meaning here. That what Paul is contrasting. Is a non-Christian to a Christian. Not a carnal Christian. An immature Christian. To a mature spiritual Christian. But a non-Christian Christian to a Christian. Verse 7. Verse 7 says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. To me, that would drive a, the last nail in the coffin to that theory because I do not see how it's possible that a Christian could be described as one who is living in hostility to God or whose life is hostile to God. Those two terms do not match up. Seems like a direct contradiction of a description of a Christian life. It is definitely true that a Christian can sin. But when a Christian sins, I'm I'm going to give you what I believe. Scripture teaches and what I have experienced in my own life here. That when a believer sins... That what is taking place in their heart is not an open, shake your fist, hostile act toward God. You know what the hostility is? The Christian is hostile to himself. Why in the world did I do what I just did? Or why do I keep doing what I should not be doing? I mean, we heard that right here on the stage this morning. A Christian's life is not a life that is defined as hostility to God. Yes, there are moments of disobedience, but certainly that cannot be the description of a Christian life, a carnal Christian life. I want you to understand as we, I'm going I'm to give you two more points related to that, but... What Paul says here about the non-Christian, he is saying about every single non-Christian. He is encompassing the whole of humanity into two groups. And he gives three or four categorical statements about non-Christians and then in contrast about Christians. And what he says about the non-Christians are not true of some It's true of every non-Christian. And what he says about the Christian is true of every Christian. And so he says, first of all, that this individual living in the flesh is hostile that cannot be a believer. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If Paul here is talking about a carnal Christian, then what he's saying is that A carnal Christian cannot please God. And yet what I read in Scripture is that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. What that means is God has given us everything we need to live a life that pleases Him. He hasn't left anything back. He didn't say, oh, to this one segment over here of humanity on my right that becomes Christians, I'm going to give you everything I need, but I'm going to leave the other three sections short of what they need. No, God does not do that. To all of humanity, he gave everything that we need. To every Christian, he gives everything that we need to live a life that pleases him. So this cannot mean It is a carnal Christian that he's talking about. And then, if neither of those two are enough, verse 9 has to fully and finally settle the issue. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. What Paul said right there is if you have the Spirit, you know what that means? You're not in the flesh. If you have the Spirit, you're not in the flesh. But what does it mean then if you do not have the Spirit, the last half of verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Did Paul say, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, then you're a carnal Christian? No, he said you don't belong. You're, you're not in the family at all. You are outside and separated from God. So the description here, the contrast that Paul is painting in these four verses is the Contrast between a non-Christian life and a Christian life. Not a carnal Christian and a spiritual Christian. So let's look now at the description that he gives. Again, this is going to be the Sunday that's a little tougher to hear. But let's look at the description that he gives of the non-Christian life. The incredible categorical, all-encompassing terms that he uses to describe the life of every Single non-believer. Verse five: For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Focus in first of all on the word "flesh," Greek "sarks." What that word means is that it's a comprehensive term. Don't limit it to the to the flesh and the bones that make up your physical body. It includes that, but it's far more than that, far more comprehensive than that. And don't limit it. A lot of times this is a, a connection that's usually thought of, particularly depending upon the translation that you read, that what this is limited to are the sensual sins of the body. That what Paul is saying here is when he's talking about A life lived according to the flesh is is just a life that is after indulging the sensual sins of the body. But that's far too limited of a term. This is a comprehensive term. And it includes, really, the overall picture of fallen human nature. That's the picture here. The picture of humanity under the curse of the fall, depraved and broken and in bondage to sin. It is a life without God. It is man left to himself without the activity of God working in his or her life. That's the life that is lived in the flesh. And what does Paul say about it? He says that it's lived according to the flesh. Lived according to the flesh. The word here in the Greek could be translated correctly as under. That such an individual in the flesh is one that is living under the flesh, meaning under the authority of, under the dominion of, under the power of, under the control of the flesh. That's the reality of every single non-Christian. It's their essence. It's the nature of their very existence that they are living under. The dominating, controlling, subjugating power of the flesh. Hopelessly so. It is the sin-dominated self as John Stott calls it, the sin-dominated self. But there's another idea in lived according to, and it's the idea of continuation. That the domination is a domination of ongoing continuation. That it is something that is lived continually that way. And then, what does Paul say that such a life does? They set their minds on the things of the flesh. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, again, the word mind here is an all-encompassing term. It doesn't just refer to intellectual activity. It is a term that is encompassing of the entire personality. It means the thoughts and the desires and the passions and the pursuits and the emotions and the understanding of an individual. It's the all-encompassing statement about who they are. And so what Paul is saying is that a life that is lived under this dominion and power and authority of the flesh, they have their mind set. Their mind is set on the things that are in this world, the things of the flesh. That's what they're after. That's what they pursue. That's what gives them pleasure. That's what's important to them. They can't see anything else. Everything is temporal. Nothing is spiritual. Everything is right here. That is what dominates and characterizes their entire life and what's important to them. That's the picture the first picture that Paul gives us in its descriptive, all-encompassing language here about the life of the unbeliever. That's a, that's a pretty hard picture. Here's a major, major problem with that picture. Listen to First John 2.16. Here's kind of an overarching statement about that kind of a life. John the Apostle wrote, for all that is in the world, and then he gives three statements that really kind of draw a circle around all of human sin. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Those three things are not from the Father, but they're from the world. The desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and pride of life. You fit all of those phrases in their meanings together that we've looked at. What Paul is giving here in this first description of the Christian life, he is describing a life that is entirely separated from God lived outside of the realm of God, lived separated from the activity of God in that life. 1 John 2.15, this is the verse right before the verse that I just read. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, this is a life outside of God's love. No love of God in them. No love for God. Completely separated. A life lived as if God did not exist. That's the first description given here in verse 5. This is a life lived as if there were no God. Now remember, the description here of the non-Christian it's true of every single non-Christian. It's true of the one that is openly, aggressively sinning and shaking his fist at God. And it's true of the very moral, religious, church-going, I-dotting, T-crossing legalist. It's true of both of those Equally. Because the statements Paul is making here are categorical statements true of all of non-Christendom and all of Christendom. Can you imagine? I'm sure that you can because even if you're saved today, you were there. I was there. Listen to Paul's second description of the non-Christian, verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Paul here is talking about spiritual death. He's not talking about at some point in the future that you're going to die. That's true, and that is a result of sin. But what Paul is talking here is about spiritual death, about a life lived outside of the activity of God. And notice here that verse 6 starts with the word for. You could also use the word because. In other words, what verse 5 says is because of what verse 6 says. In other words, you can switch the order that because of the reality of what's in verse 6, the result is verse 5. Verse 5 is because of verse 6. So what does verse 6 say? That the one that is living in the flesh is living a life of spiritual death. And what is the result of that spiritual death? It is a life that is... Live with a mind that is entirely outside of the spiritual realm. Of course, because it's spiritually dead. It's a life that doesn't understand the spiritual realm at all. It's outside of the life of God and outside of an understanding of Christ and outside of an understanding of the condition of their own soul. First Corinthians two fourteen. Here's another description Paul gives of that kind of a life. The natural person, this would be the same as the person in the flesh, the natural person, listen to what they can't do, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, folks, the non-Christian is absolutely incapable of understanding anything spiritual. Why? They're dead. They're dead. You would have as much luck speaking to a corpse and getting it to understand you than one that is spiritually dead, being able to understand spiritual things, to being able to understand the truth of the spiritual realities of Scripture. That's their condition And they don't realize their condition. They can't see their condition. They're blind to it just like a dead person is blind. They're deaf to it just like a deaf person cannot hear what you say. They can't sense it. They can't feel that truth because they're dead. Just like a corpse cannot feel you if you shake it and say, Wake up! It's spiritual death. So we have, first of all, verse 5 a life lived under the dominating. Power and control, subjugation of the flesh with a mind that is totally focused on the temporal things of this world, the fleshly things of this world, and that life is absolutely cut out and outside of the spiritual realm, living in an existence of spiritual death, separated from the life of God, separated from the truth of the spiritual realm, even a recognition of that realm. And then, number three, verse 7 For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Now, some Christians struggle with these kind of categorical statements uh, that Paul makes, trying to figure out what he means instead of letting him say what he says. Such a mind is hostile to God. Here's the rub. Maybe you as a an unbeliever right here today, maybe you who are a Christian, but when you were an unbeliever or you have spoken with unbelievers, who you would say, well, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. I know some people that say they're not a Christian, but they're not hostile to God. They like to talk about God. Matter of fact, sometimes they're the ones that initiate the conversation about God. How in the world can it be true then that what Paul is saying here is that every single non-Christian is hostile to God. I think exactly what Paul says here is true. That the meaning is right there on the surface. And here is the, here's the problem. Maybe they're not hostile in their conversations about God because they're not talking about the same God. You see, there are many, and I think in some realities, none of us obviously with finite minds fully understand God, but those that have put together a God of their own understanding what kind of a God is a God that is easy to believe in? Let me tell you, and, and we'll just see if this is the, the message of the culture of our world today, our country today, that God's the God of all love and all grace. God of all love and all grace. He would never punish anyone. He would never do anything that would cause pain. He's a God of perfect love. That's the God that they are not hostile to. But if you bring in the God of the Bible, the God who is not only a God of mercy and of grace and of love, but who's a God of wrath and judgment and justice, I'm talking about the God that Jesus Christ came and proclaimed. The God that Jesus Christ came and went to the cross to appease His wrath. Jesus Christ's life is the greatest testimony that we have a God of wrath. Do you know that? His life is the proof that we have a God that will not turn His back On sin. Not one single time. And when you talk about that kind of a God, oh, there's hostility. I don't believe in that kind of a God. I want the God of my own making. And then verse 7b It's a nice follow to the hostility. It says, "For that kind of life, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It does not submit." Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? If the life is lived in hostility to God and His law, then it ain't going to submit. To the law of God. It's in opposition. It's fighting against. It's hostile and aggressive toward it. But look closely that it says something far deeper than that. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. Do you know what that means right there? It means that not only do they not want to submit to the law of God, it means that it's absolutely impossible for them to submit to the law of God. It means that they cannot make themselves love God. It's an absolute, total impossibility for them to do that. And what's the final conclusion of the life of the non-Christian? Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In other words, it is absolutely impossible for one who is living in the condition of In the flesh, setting their minds on the things of the flesh, living in a state of spiritual death, outside of the life of God, outside of any recognition of anything spiritual, completely dead to those things, living in hostility to the very law of God. Such a person obviously cannot live a life that is pleasing to God in any way. Wow, what a categorical, all-encompassing indictment about the reality of the condition of the non-Christian. It is absolutely hopeless. And in the midst of it all, they have no idea. They can't see where they're at, which just feeds The perpetuation of the same reality continuing. Now you say, Brad, thanks a lot for the great news. Well, first of all, you take it up with God, not me, because I didn't write it. I'm just passing it on, but I got some good news for you, though. I got some good news for you. Good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. Good news about the grace of God. Let me draw as we conclude here, just some bring together some concluding truths or equipping and encouraging truths related to what we just looked at. Here's the first one. Remember what I said I wanted to do to begin with? I wanted to paint a picture as Paul crafted it with his pen. I want to try to paint a picture of the life of each of these two, um, the, the two descriptions of each of these two lives so that you could hold it up and look at it. See if you saw yourself in the mirror. First thing I would say is to test your faith, consider your mindset. If you want to do some diagnostic looking into your heart, as Scripture tells you to you know, examine your faith, test your faith, that one of the things to zero in on is your mindset. A lot of this passage here in these four verses is about the mind, about the mindset as I described what that mean, that meant, that phrase meant. Let me ask you a question then. What do you set your mind on? I mean, I I know you're busy people just like I am. And you have to put your energies, your thought processes toward the things that are before you, the responsibilities. But when your mind goes on to default, what is that? that your mind goes to? What are you thinking about? What are the passions and desires of your heart? What are you pursuing in life? What are you working for? Are you working to get a Bigger house and a better portfolio and all of the stuff of the world. Is that what you automatically gravitate to in your thinking? Does that what consumes you? Is that what makes you the most happy and is the most important thing in your life? Or is it something spiritual? When your mind relaxes, does it go to God? Does it go to the things of your soul, your condition and your relationship to Him? Does it go to the spiritual realities of life? You see, Paul is saying here in this contrast that a life lived in the flesh is one that is focused always here, always on what's around, always on the temporal. And the contrast is that the life lived in the Spirit is focused on the things of the Spirit. Where's your mindset at? It's a good way to do some probing in your heart. Here's a second point of application. One that just should jump out as so obvious. Another little diagnostic tool here. What Paul is describing here is that there is a radical difference between a non-Christian and a Christian. A radical, categorical, complete and total, comprehensive, polar difference between a non-Christian and a Christian. Is your life different? Is your life different? And I'm not... Again, I am not focusing this on just the things that you're doing and primarily not even the things that you do and your actions. I'm talking about those things that really define you. What are your passions and pursuits and desires and fears and joys and hopes and what are they surrounding? What are they centered on? What do you build them on regularly? Do you build them on the things of this world? Or do you build them on the things of God and the things of the spiritual realm and the things related to your soul and its relationship to God? What is the automatic default when your mind goes into just rest? Does it go right to those things or to the things of the world? should be a radical difference between the life of a Christian and the life of a non-Christian. Because what's inside is categorically different and it can't help but produce something categorically different on the outside. You know, The legalist can put on a lot of external airs. That's why I'm not focusing on those things. The legalist can look really clean. The Pharisee can tie the tenth of their mint and dill and cumin, as Scripture says, and neglect the weightier matters. But the issue is the very wellspring. What's your heart focused on? What's your mind centered on? Is God there? Is He there preeminent? Is He the thing that is far more important than anything else in your life? Let me just say this as strongly as I know how to say it, borrowing from the great master himself, Jesus Christ. If you love anything greater than God, your wealth or your houses or your sons or your daughters or your wife or your husband, you're not worthy. God has got to be number one. The life that is a life lived after the Spirit and not after the flesh has settled that issue right there. And what the world would say, wow, that's out of balance. The Christian knows that's the only way it's got to be. That God is preeminent, that everything else compared to Him. I mean, we heard that right here in the testimony this morning too, didn't we? So there must be a radical transformation. Clearly, that's what Paul is painting here with his pen. And then number three, what about the salvation of others? There's a great implication here based upon what we just studied and the salvation of others. You that have, if you have friends that are unsaved, you have children or parents or loved ones or Husbands or wives that are unsaved, listen carefully. You see, there is this kind of I'm not sure exactly how what term to use, but I'll just describe it. there's this thought process in the at times in the Church of America that it works like this. That the salvation of an unbeliever works like this. And I'm going to explain it and you tell me, don't tell me, don't say it out loud, but just in your mind, is that true or is that not true? I want you to critically examine what I am saying here. That here's here's how it happens. A person who is lost they hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is presented to them, whether it be in mean, a service service like this, whether it be over a cup of coffee with a friend, on the, through the TV or radio, but the gospel is presented to someone who is lost. And then that individual that is lost, that individual that is dead, That is living a life in the flesh, that when that person hears the gospel, that what they have to do at that moment is they have to evaluate it and make a decision. Are they going to accept it or are they going to reject it? And those who process that and say, okay, you know, in their strength and their state as a as an unbeliever, that description that we gave in those four verses, as they decide, okay, I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, that what happens then at that point is that God comes in and gives them a brand new life. Rhetorical question, but is that true? And what I want to say to you, that's not true. That is not the biblical model that is flying right in the face of what Paul is saying here. That does violence to the truth of the New Testament and the plan of salvation. You see, what Paul explained here is that the unsaved person is dead. They are stone cold dead. They can't hear the truth. They can't evaluate the truth. They can't assess it and mull it over in their mind and determine whether or not it's a viable thing to bank on or not. They're dead. They have no ability to make the choice to accept God in their own power. They cannot believe unless God gives them the faith to believe. They cannot accept unless God wakes them out of death and helps them to see and to hear and to understand the truth that's being proclaimed. If God doesn't do that, they're going to stay dead. So what's the implication then? It is this. Yes, get the gospel to them. Proclaim it. Try to get it to them every chance you can. But you better do this. You better hit your knees and hit your face and beg God to open up their minds and open up their hearts to wake them out of death so that they say, oh my goodness, I never saw that before. I'm hopeless. I'm lost. I'm a sinner. I'm under the wrath of God. And unless he saves me, I am going to fall into an eternal abyss outside of his presence. You need to beg God that that would happen in the lives of those who are unsaved because the Spirit of God has to come to them as the truth is being proclaimed and wake them up so they can see and hear and accept. If that doesn't happen, they are going to stay dead and they're going to die physically and then it's going to be over forever. That sets up then the last applicational truth here. Oh, and it's a good one. It's a good one. You see, you're never going to understand the good news until you understand the bad news. You will never appreciate the truth, the unadulterated truth of the gospel until you dive deep into the reality of what you have without it, which we tried to do this morning. So here's the great truth. You see what chapter 8 is all about. What Paul is doing in the 8th chapter of Romans, he's driving home one great truth over and over and over again. And here it is. The full and the final and the forever salvation of everyone who believes. The absolute eternal salvation secured, unchanging position of the believer that is in Christ. That position is never going to change. Started in verse 1 with the great propositional statement that made that claim that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that that is a no condemnation now, no condemnation ever. It is there. Full, final, and forever eternal reality. So how does verse 5 through 8 validate that truth? It validates it like this. That the person that is lost can't do anything to save themselves. They're dead. They are absolutely totally and forever incapable of doing one even one simple thing to present themselves to god they're dead what has to happen is that god has to do everything God has to come to that person and wake them out of their spiritual death and help them to see and give them the faith to believe so that they receive that and then are joined into the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is why that validates the full final and forever security of the believer, because if it's something that God does, it's guaranteed. If it's something that you have a part of, it's shaky. It's not guaranteed. And because it's all of God and none of you, that means that it is secure. And there is nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth that is able to snatch you out of the hand of God and take you away from the love of God once God has come to you and he has awoken you and he has shown you your need and presented His Son and through the Spirit given you faith to believe and when you believe, baptized you into the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're in Christ, who's going to come and take you? Who is going to come and take you from the conqueror of the world? Nobody! Nobody! Your salvation is full, it's final, and it is forever because it is all of God. All of God. What we'll do next week is we'll look at the positive side. We'll look at the description of the believer in the incredible statements in contrast that Paul makes. And they will provide for us incredible diagnostic tools to look into our own life. Incredible. So I encourage you to not miss that. Let me just have you stand. We're going to have... Actually, no, don't stand. I'm sorry. We're going to have communion. We're going to have communion. You can stand if you want, I guess. but Communion is a great way to end this, because the symbols of communion are pointing the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are pointing the way to the one thing, the only thing that makes the difference. And that is the the life and the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And so communion is remembering that Jesus Willingly came to this earth as God in the flesh, and He died for us, and He shed His blood to pay the penalty for our sin. So, if you're a believer, the Lord's Supper, communion, it's for you. Because what you're saying in taking it is, I identify with Jesus Christ. I am one of His, I am in Him. So communion is for believers. It is not for unbelievers. Now, maybe this morning, as you heard the good news in the midst of the bad news, the good news of Jesus Christ, you say, I I want that new life. I'm putting my faith in Jesus right now this morning. Then it's for you. There's not any extra hoops you have to jump through except you believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, really believing that He and only He is the way to make you right with God. So maybe you want to take communion for the first time as a new believer. You're welcome to do that. But it is for those who have accepted Christ as their Savior and Lord. Ushers, would you come? Father, as we receive these elements, just I want to say thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for the perfect life, the willing death and the mighty resurrection of Jesus Christ that defeated sin and Satan and death and hell and opens up to us life with you here now and with you forever in heaven. Christ's name I pray. Amen.
1: How deep the Father's love for us! How vast beyond all measure! That He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure! How great! Chosen One Bring many sons to the Lord i Ask you for sin. living in the hope of Christ.